If you would all please stand in honor of God's word. We are going to be digging into Ephesians again. We have two more weeks in the book of Ephesians, and then we're going to be, surprisingly enough, we're going to have, as Jordan had shared with us, Rachel will be here. And then that week after, guess what starts? Christmas. And the Advent season is the Sunday after Thanksgiving. We'll be starting our Christmas series, and we're going to be looking at um, the angel coming and telling people not to be afraid. I think it's a very good series that we're going to um, learn a lot from and that we could all take some some advice from in that. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14, right through the end of the chapter. This is where we're going to settle ourselves out today. We're going to go into prayer when I'm finished reading the word. Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated as we go into prayer. And Father, we just come before you this morning lifting up everybody that we have spoken about. You know who they are, and we all know who they are. I pray, Father, that you would keep them all in our hearts and that we would be focused on the things that are needed. You know what their needs are, and we just lift them up to you. We lift Taj and Patty both to you. We lift Deb's mom, Florida, up to you, and, and Deb and Sarah and Debbie's sister and, and brothers and, and the entire family we lift up to you. We pray continued healing for her at 91 years old. Uh, we are thankful, Lord, that they have her for some more time, for Leah and her family, but most especially for Desiree and Destiny, and for Mary, her mom, and for John, her stepdad. Father, that your hands would be upon them and that you would help them to make some sense out of this. Reminding them, as we learned yesterday, that Jesus has victory over death and there will be a day when they will see their mom again. And Lord, we are thankful for that. Pray for Brian's dad, that you would just continue to watch over him, Lord, and just give wisdom there in that situation. I just am thankful for Brian and for what it is he and his sisters do. Lord, we pray for, for Brady. We pray for Zach, we pray for John, we pray for all those who are in the military. We pray that you would watch over them, most especially at this time of the year as we gather around table for the holidays and we celebrate things we're thankful for and we celebrate the birth of Jesus. But sometimes there are men and women who are scattered throughout this world who are separated from their families. Help us never to forget that, that without them we can't do what we do. Thank you for calling them. I thank you for gifting them. I thank you for giving them the heart to serve this country in this way. And I pray that you bring them home safe to us for the holiday if they can, Lord. And I pray that you watch over them and you just continue to keep your hands upon them. Help Zach and Melissa and little Molly to settle. Um, continue to be there in Phoenix and just and grow together, Lord, in your riches and in your mercy. Father, now as we come to your word, I ask that you would open it up to us that we would put aside all of the things that we think, all of the things that we want, all of the things that we desire, all of the things that we um, 
we think are most important so that we can all hear what it is you have to say today. Pray that we would capture the heart and the mind of this Apostle Paul and these things that he's saying. We just give you thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Titled the message, again, not so original, but you know, when I can when I can steal from the Apostle Paul, I will. And I did. So the title is to him who is able this morning. And really what I want us primarily to focus on, once again, we're only three weeks out from it, but here we are again because this is what the text is really looking at is prayer. Prayer. This prayer-filled life before God that we see exemplified in Paul will always carry us or carry us to places that only he can imagine and design for us as his people. Only prayer at that point, if we are being called and being driven by God to these places, only prayer at that point can sustain us on the journey that we take, that is filled with joy, that at times is filled with trials, both high and low, that at times are filled with moments of mourning and moments of happiness. Without prayer, we go nowhere. So that's the primary focus today. And we start at the end this morning, which might make a lot of people happy because it's already quarter of 12. So we might get out of here pretty soon. I want to start at the end because it just seemed to make sense to me as I studied this text. The end of Paul's opening encouragement to this young church in Ephesus, knowing full well the trials that they were going to face in the world and in the culture that he had left them in and that they found themselves in, this apostle, This wonderful man of God, Paul the Apostle, suffering for the cause of the gospel in prison, as we have learned, and for the sake of the Ephesian people and all other churches that he had planted. He had not only overseen Ephesus, he was responsible for a lot of different churches. He prays. He doesn't get wound up, he doesn't get lost, he doesn't get frustrated, he prays. And giving us one of the most well-known couple of verses in all of Paul's writings, spoken as it should be in a lot of churches as the benediction as the pastor closes the service for the day, because of it's so full of hope and it is so full of the promises of God, what we hear him say in verses 20 and 21 is very simple. And we could end here. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, let that rest in your heart. There's a lot here. According to the power at work within who? Us. Not in him, but in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In other words, there it is, so be it, this is how it works. This steady and this consistent pattern is seen throughout the life of Paul the Apostle, not least of all in this letter to the Ephesian church. Paul ends this section praising God for all of the things that he has done and all of the things that he has been able to perform in and through this Apostle Paul. And not only that, but also in the church itself as well. Paul is praising God for that. And reflecting back all the way into chapter 1 and verse 3, where he starts the entire letter centering on God and his blessings that he had found in the Ephesian church, he says this in that chapter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He starts the letter, third verse, which wasn't there to begin with. It was just part of the letter. This is the first thing he says, blessed be God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praising God in heaven 
for all that he has done and encouraging and, and as a result praying for that church as well, this very young church in Ephesus. This is Paul's way of being. This isn't just some sort of afterthought thing. See, N.T. Wright quoting him again in his small commentary, New Testament for everyone in his letter, he says this about Paul the Apostle, that there is nothing perfunctory about Paul's worship and prayer. One gets the sense here in this letter and elsewhere that his life revolved around it. This, we may suppose, is part of the secret, and this is the catch. It's unbelievable. This is part of the secret of the extraordinary power that seemed to flow through his preaching, through his pastoral work, and through his writing. Covered and blanketed in prayer. And we talked about this just a short few weeks ago. The power, the purpose, and the necessity of a very strong prayer life for the Christian and the believer. Well, prayer is not the only thing we do because some people think that that's it. We're going to pray that the Lord would bless us and dump all kinds of things in our lap. And then the world just passes us by and we wonder what happened. No, prayer is not the only thing we do, but everything we do starts and it finishes with prayer and all the things in between. Because we can't do anything worth anything in the name of Jesus and in the power of Jesus without praying to seek what God the Father wants for us. You see, because prayer sorts things out. Otherwise, we're just kind of going about our business trying to figure it out. Prayer settles our hearts when our hearts are completely unsettled. Prayer brings us to a place of comfort when we are in a place of discomfort. Prayer brings us to a place of peace when we are in a place where we don't experience peace. Prayer focuses our attention. It brings us to the place we need to be, like Isaiah, like Nehemiah, like Ezra. Where we're before the throne of God and through prayer we are given direction. We are given purpose and we are given strength for the tasks that are ahead that God assigns to us. Prayer convicts us. This is where we don't like it. We like all that other stuff. But here prayer convicts us of the things that we need to give over to God. The things that we hold on to. Those things that we don't like it when the Holy Spirit stirs in our heart. Perhaps, Mike, you know, you might be just a little bit hammerheaded about this. Maybe you ought to sit down and think it through a little bit. We don't like it when prayer convicts us, but it does convict us of the things that we need to give over to God. It reminds us of how good He is to us and how He cares for us and how He has called us to Him. Prayer reminds us and sustains us in the most trying of times, did it not? We pray in the most trying of times, and it helps us in the most confusing of times. It settles our mind and helps us understand that in the midst of whatever you find yourself in, God is there. So I learned this just yesterday. People think that if you're in the middle of a storm, this has nothing to do with this, so Donna, forgive me. If you are in the midst of a storm, more often than not, the first thing we ask is, what did I do wrong? But what I was reminded of yesterday in Mark's gospel and the scriptures is the apostles and the, and the disciples were in a boat on the lake in obedience to what Jesus had told them to do in the middle of a storm. Sometimes you being in the middle of the storm is simply because you are obedient. Without prayer, you won't be able to sort that out. Prayer is absolutely essential. Begin the day with prayer, end the day with prayer, and then fill your day with prayer. 
when you go about your business. You see, Paul would never have survived his life. He would never have survived the assigned task were it not for his developed private prayer life. Would not have happened. He would not have continued through all of the beatings that he suffered. You go to 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. You find out what it is this apostle suffered for the sake of you, me, and this church. He would have never survived that were it not for his prayer life. He would have never survived the trial after trial after trial. He would have never been able to survive the imprisonments, the imprisonments, over and over and over again, in prison because he's speaking the gospel. How could he survive without prayer? He wouldn't have. How could he survive the abandonment of his friends left and right when things got too tough? They all took off, but he stayed the course. When life got rough and they said, oh, I want to go home to mom because I'm not getting my way or it's just not working well and you want to go in this direction and that's a little too frightening for me. And they take off. How could he survive that without prayer? The personal attacks of the people who found it within themselves to go everywhere where the apostle Paul went and did nothing but accuse. Very helpful people. You want a lot of those folks around you in your life. But without prayer, Paul would never have survived any of that stuff. Were he not assured by God in his private prayer time that I have called you and it is I who will strengthen you and walk you through whatever comes your way. It's essential that we understand this. You see, we saw in our first reading this morning in his letter to the Colossians, that's the companion letter to this Ephesian letter, Paul speaks about his ministry and he is pained in that text for them to understand what his pastoral ministry towards them is costing him and how little he actually cares what it is costing him. See, verse 24 and 29 in particular are clear. Verse 24 says, I rejoice in my suffering. For what? For your sake. For your sake. Do you think they really understood that? For your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is, you, the church. I'm cool with this if you are growing to maturity in Christ. I'm okay with the beatings if I know that you are staying the course. I'm okay with the accusations, the lies, the stonings, the shipwrecks, the being thrown in jail, so long as I know you're staying the course. I'm okay with that. And these aren't mumblings and ramblings of a crazy old fool who's been hit in the head one too many times. Not at all. He is not lost in his suffering. He is very aware of what's going on. He is a man who has been called by God to do a particular thing, empowered by him and sustained through his prayerful confidence in God that he is who he called him to be. And it was a good steward that he was going to make sure he was of the task that God had given him, no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. He wants to present every single person who was under his care to God, mature and well-discipled, in Christ. Even if they kicked and screamed the whole way down that road, he was a good steward of what God told him. I want you mature, and I want you discipled in Christ. That's his only concern. So what if I'm in a dank dungeon? It doesn't matter. It may not perhaps be their main concern, but it certainly was his as their spiritual father. How does that happen? How do things like that occur? Why would anyone in their right mind go into ministry like that knowing that this is going to be, in part, your lot in life? Who hits their head that hard on a given Saturday to know that this is what is going to occur when you step into ministry? 
It's a very good question to be sure, one that many pastors ask. You spend a little bit of time on the internet and listening to pastors talk about the things that they deal with on a regular basis. This is a question they ask themselves all the time. That's why if you're not called, I tell young pastors, if you can find yourself to do anything else, and I've shared this with you before, go do it. Because you're going to be more harm to yourself and more harm to the congregation that you think God has given you. If you need to be doing something else, you need to go do it. This is a calling. And to the ministry, pastors are called. But we have only one master, and that's what Paul tells us, the Lord Jesus. Once that is established, things get sorted out very quickly, if not easily. They get sorted out very quickly because Paul tells them that he is not alone and he's not operating in his own capacity. He says in verse 29 of Colossians, For this I toil, struggling with all whose? His energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul's prayer life lets him know what he's supposed to do, where he's supposed to go, and how it's supposed to happen. Paul's prayer life also assures him that God has called him, God will empower him, God will sustain him, and he will see him through to the end. All Paul needs to do is be faithful to what God has called him to do. The Christian life is one that is lived in the power of God. That is to be at work within us, just as it's to be at work within Paul. We have no ability Understand, we have no ability to fully handle the life of a Jesus follower. We have no ability to be the Christian that God calls us to be outside of the Holy Spirit within us. That's the deal. We have no power on our own. This stuff doesn't even make sense if we don't have the Holy Spirit. No one in their right mind would go down this road if we don't have the Holy Spirit. We have to die to ourselves every single day in order to live for him to fulfill the task that he has assigned to each and every one of you here. Whatever that task looks like. Whatever that task looks like. We focus in this way. We find that we can do anything and everything that he calls us to even when we are completely and totally unsettled by it. When we step into uncharted waters and change happens and we don't like it and it's freaking us out, if we are settled... And what it is God has called us to do, that makes it easier, if not less frightening. But I'll tell you right now, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will for your life, even if it's in the middle of a storm. Safely on your couch when he's telling you to do something else is not the best place to be. Paul knew that. Paul was trying to teach them that. So to him who is able, Paul ends with, and that helps us greatly to understand the very first statement he makes. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason, I bow my knees. You see, this is Paul's summation, as it were, before he launches in to the next section of his letter, chapter 4 all the way through chapter 6, where we are given our assignments as the church and his people in this world. And he uses this phrase for this reason two other times in the first three chapters of this letter. Chapter 1, it's attached to the fact that Paul never ceases to give thanks on behalf of the Ephesian people. Why? Because in Jesus, their love towards one another gave him cause to give thanks to God. That's a powerful and important observation. Because here's a church that's left in a city that is very antagonistic to the church. 
And they're all fractured because they don't know what this family likes about this particular person and what that family likes about that person. And some of them are in the church, but their whole family's not in the church. We know all this. This is a struggle they're having. And yet, he thanks God. I bow my knee and I thank God because the love you have for one another. In the midst of all of the trials, what I'm most thankful for is that you love each other. That you love one another. See, again, in the beginning of chapter 3, we learned last week or a couple weeks ago that he reminded them that he's a prisoner on their behalf. I bow my knee, and I want to remind you I am a prisoner on your behalf, and I am happy to do so because this is what God has told me to do. So long as the gospel message is not chained, Paul seems to care very little where he finds his pulpit. That's pretty clear in the scriptures. In the midst of it all, he never ceases to pray for all of those people who are under his care. Whether they know it or not, whether they see it or not, whether he expresses it or not, it is permeating his letters. See, these are the people whom he is willing to risk his life for while he was with them. Acts 19 and 20, we read that. That riot we talked about last week, Paul wanted to go into the midst of this riot into the midst to talk to these people about their frustration and their accusations against him. It's crazy. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowds, the disciples would not let him. They knew it was nuts. But this is where he wants to go. Nope. If my pulpit's at the end of a rope, so be it. He wished to go into the crowd, and even some of the Asiarchs who were his friends of his sent, him, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Don't do it. Don't do it. What drives him? What drives a human being to do that? What drives a person? His pastoral concern for his people. That's what. His pastoral concern for his people. Specifically those in Ephesus at the time. His life was of no value to him so long as he could fulfill the call in his life. Paul knows the people in this church at Ephesus. He intimately knows them. He's left them in the care of the elders that he personally trained up as overseers. Challenging them in Acts chapter 20 to watch the flock and discharge their duty. I have to leave because God is calling me elsewhere. But I have put good people over you. That's all in Acts chapter 20. I leave that to you for your homework because I'm going to quickly run out of time. But there's a beautiful farewell after more than two years of faithful ministry there that I want us to look at just for a minute. Even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of chaos, Paul is concerned with the spiritual health of his people rather than his own well-being. And we have to understand this. This is the heart of a pastor. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. Okay, God, in his prayer life, he's been told, I've got to change a mission for you. Your time here in Ephesus is done. i got to change a mission for you. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, how do you think that those people there felt? Unsettled, yes? Of course they did. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, this is the only clue he got. It's great stuff. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Woohoo! There's some marching orders right there. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let that settle. Wherever that finds you, 
let that settle. He continues in verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He's speaking to the elders now. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You think elders aren't important? Guard the flock. Of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God. Which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you. Not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. To draw away disciples after them. Therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul knows these people. He knows them very, very personally. He discipled all the leaders that he left in charge there and knew what was coming their way. And as much as when he parted from them, the last thing that they did And you can read that if you continue in Acts chapter 20. The last thing they did together is they gathered on the beach and they got down on their knees and they prayed. And then he was sent on his way. Why? Why? He's doing it again in this letter to the Ephesians. Why? Because it is his formed habit to pray. It is his formed habit to pray and to do so without ever ceasing. It creates a settled and ordered life. Even in the midst of all of the trouble and trial, you think for a moment, the only clue I got is I'm going to get the snot beat out of me everywhere I go. I'm game. Without prayer, no one in their right mind would do it. Because if they weren't settled in their heart that this is what God called them to do, they would have stayed put. Nobody does these things. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. Be encouraged. Stay the course. Fight the fight. He would tell their pastor, Timothy, that young man who he wrote two letters to. Why would he tell him that? Well, he continues that because every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. You see, he's concerned that his people are equipped for the fight. For the task ahead is the church and a culture which is against everything that they believe. That's the concern. He's at pains until Christ is formed in them. He knows the source of success, and it's not their own abilities. But Christ, that's who, but Christ, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in what? Love. See, we're back to chapter 1 again. We're back to chapter 1 again. The power of God and the love of Christ is what Paul is drawing on here in this short prayer. That's what he's pulling on. He knows that by faith Jesus dwells in us. He knows that. But we have to grow mature in that, and then we have to live the life that he has empowered us to live. If Christ dwells in my heart, if Christ dwells in your heart, we are new creation, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians. The old is gone, or at least it's supposed to be. But every day we have to put this stuff to death. 
we have to say to ourselves, I will not live that way anymore. Why? Because God has made me new. I am a new creation. I can't live that way anymore. Does that mean I'm not going to think that I'm going to live that way? Of course. We're all broken. And that's, read your paper. But we have to put it to death every day and choose not to be that way. Not in your attitudes, not in the way in which you respond to problems, not in the way in which you treat other people, not in the way in which you speak to or about other people. We have to put those things to death in order that we may live for Christ, rather be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Learn to know the strength and the power of Jesus in you. Because you are the hope of glory. That's a frightening thing to think on for a moment. You are the hope of glory. Why? Because Christ is in you. And the Bible says that we as pastors are at pains in order that he be formed in you in a way that brings about his glory. Learn to know the strength. That you have. Why? Because in doing so, we are filled with all the fullness of God by His Spirit. And to me, I, I couldn't get my hands around this. This is one of those things this week I just couldn't get my hands around. It's quite incomprehensible to me, given the way sometimes we respond as human beings, myself included. <laughs> just sat back in my chair and I thought about that for a minute. But the image bearer living as we always were intended to live Paul makes it very clear here that in Jesus we now have this ability by faith to live the way we're supposed to but we don't always act accordingly that's why it's hard for me to get my hands around that but that the creator of the universe comes looking for who? you why? because he loves you he's looking for us and he is making the plea to us through broken clay like you and me that's all we are earthen vessels filled with his presence come home to God the Father he has made the way for you that's the purpose in prayer if you're in him I want to ask you are you holding back parts of your life from him are there areas where you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to help you wrestle through these things so that you can lay them at his feet in order that he can fill you and empower you even more? Are you wrestling with letting go of control of things? Are there things in your life that you just will not take your hands off of when the Lord says, you have to trust me in this? Are you holding on tightly to things that God is saying to you, let go? What's the answer to those questions? You see, you are not only rooted and grounded in love, Paul tells you in this letter, but he continues telling us that that is not without purpose, but that rather we may be strength or have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, we're right back to where we started at the end. Verses 20 and 21. The power at work within us and the fullness of God is ours. Do you understand that? 
it is ours. That's what the Bible tells us. The creator of all that is seen and unseen, if you are in Christ, has taken residence up inside of you. Again, let that rest upon you. How do we behave? How do we act and think? And not only is he able when he does that, we have to ask he's able to do what? Well, once again, Paul makes it very clear for us. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. You see, Paul's saying this God that you worship is not a little silver statue that Demetrius and the goons made. You can't go down to the local bookstore down at the Agora marketplace there and pick yourself up a book of spells and conjure up this, this Yahweh. That's not who he is. He is the living God. He is the living God, and he has called you out of darkness and made you his own. I may be in prison for preaching, Paul says to him, <laughs> but you are not left as orphans. I may be locked up here, but you are not left alone. I am on my knees before God the Father, before whom all the families in heaven and earth get their name for you. Remember, you have the same Holy Spirit. Stay the course. Stay the course. Far more abundantly. Far more abundantly. Now, I'm not an English major, but you think Paul's trying to make a point here? It's not God can do what you ask of him on Tuesday. Nor is it, God, can you please strengthen me because I'm having a hard day because I tripped over the cat, stepped on his tail, hit my head on the door and dumped my coffee on my Bible kind of thing. It's not what's going on here. Now, that's a bad day. You probably ought to go back to bed and try starting over again. But <laughs> that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is emphatic about not only who God is, but also what God can and is willing to do for you. This is important for us. This is important for us. God the Father can do way more than we could ever ask for. Way more. What that then means is that we ain't asking enough. Because he can do way more than we ever asked for. So what are you holding back? He can do way more. Prayer to God the Father must be in abundance and in submission to his will for us. I'm not praying for a new Cadillac, although that'd be cool. But I'm not praying for a new Cadillac. It's not God's will. I'm not looking for a $7 million Learjet. Not God's will. I'm praying, Lord, what are you going to do with my life? Because mine don't belong to me. It belongs to you. So what do you want from me? And then strengthen me in that. In order that we can be instructed by him and in him to do what we are called and designed for. Because he can. This is the frightening thing. I've learned that this is why we don't ask these prayers. Because he can and he will do way more than you think he would ever do. Even beyond the capacity that we have to even think about, Paul emphasizes for us. It's not just a matter of bless my day and protect my family. This is, Lord, we are at war with the forces of evil in the heavenly places. Strengthen me to do what I'm supposed to do here, right now, on this planet, with what you have in front of me. Because this isn't a game. 
And the first place that the enemy likes to attack is here. A church divided becomes a weak church. A church that doesn't exemplify the love of Christ is a church that has no way to move forward. And Paul says, guard against that. Guard against that. We do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the principalities and powers and the spiritual forces in this present darkness. And I am here to empower you. Ask. Ask. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways aren't your ways. But I am yours and you are mine. That's what the scripture says. And we believe what this book says? Or do we just read it and go home and go about our business? God's up there, we're down here, we're making our way. You are glued to him. He goes where you go. Why? Because he's in you. Wherever you are, there you're at. Prayer focuses. Paul's life was a walking, talking, living, breathing prayer. See, there's no way that he would have persevered otherwise. And there is no way you will ever persevere in what God has for you to do if you don't understand this. He is willing, ready, and able to pour himself into you. You see, in all of these things Paul established that are ours in him in the first chapter, remember. I would encourage you to go back and read it if you need to. All the things that God gave us in him, in Christ, those are ours. The abundant grace of God given to us as adoption as sons in the second chapter. We find summed up here. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So be it. This is the way it is. We're good. In the midst of your struggle and fear, and I leave you with this, if I could have the worship team come up. In the midst of your struggle and fear, I want you to understand this. This is another quote from a commentary that I, but I think it's helpful. If it's the true God we've been worshiping, we should be filled with a sense of new possibilities, of new tasks, new energy to accomplish them. Then think of what God might do in and through you, you as a community and you as an individual. Now reflect on the fact that God is perfectly capable of doubling that, even tripling that. That's what we learn here today. Okay? Going so far beyond what we could ask, you will look back at the present moment here and wonder how you could have been so short-sighted. That set me back in my chair. We always overestimate what God can do in and through us in a given year. And this is not my quote. I don't own it, but this is true. We always overestimate what God can do in and through us in a given year. But we also severely underestimate what he can do for us in five or even ten years. Who would have known that almost 40 years ago, this past summer, this is where we would be? But God knew. That's a joyful thing and a faith-building thing. We aren't here by accident. We don't serve a God of accidents. Neither was the church in Ephesus. The harder thing for us as a community as we close here and that we need to be prayerful about is where will we be in the next 40 years? Where will we be? What will we look like? Because God is still in the business of doing far more abundantly, more than all we could ever ask, think, imagine, and anything. And that, my friends, today is the cause for great hope. No matter where this finds you, 
because it does come with a cost as any good thing does but it is a hopeful thing if we could stand if I could have the people who are willing to pray if you would just find your places please Lord as we close this morning in this last song settle our hearts I want to encourage you if you are in need of prayer and I know that some of you are if you would just step out we have some folks in the back if you're uncomfortable with coming up front Um, but I would encourage you not to leave without prayer.